Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. It's been an exciting week of news, so there's plenty to talk about on this episode. Inside Israel News is back with a vengeance, ready to bring you uh, erudite analysis of Israeli politics and current events in the Middle East uh, without the the media bias. Uh, I will give my opinions here, but I also clarify what I consider to be opinion and what I consider to be fact for your benefit. And that is the core of the show. These last few years, it's become increasingly difficult to know whom to trust in terms of the media and the presentation of news and information. Uh, Where do you go to get analysis that isn't entirely biased and one-sided, full of opinion and short on facts? Well, Inside Israel News is here to help bring you that uh, news of the Middle East and and politics and uh, now in Europe a little bit too and... uh, That way you can understand what's going on and uh, have a good analysis without the obvious bias, right? Okay, so we had a terrible attack in Israel. Um, Yehuda Dementman was killed. Two others were wounded in a ramming attack. And uh, six Palestinian terrorists have been apprehended. At first they got away, but now they have been uh, arrested. And this is the kind of thing, as I was talking about in last episode, it, <clears throat> constantly there's, there's a stabbing attack and another ramming attack, and they, they try to keep this constant drum of violence going. Uh, and I just want to take a moment to touch on the question of uh, Palestinian resistance once more. I've attacked the popular perceptions of the Palestinian cause many times before. Here we have this this cause that we're told is righteous. Like we've told that, you know, the poor Palestinians are so oppressed and so picked on by the Israelis, the mean, powerful, white Israelis who are uh, picking on the poor, helpless, brown-skinned uh, Palestinians, right? We, we hear all of this nonsense. But if this cause was so righteous, why can't the Palestinians adopt nonviolent resistance, right? This is how Gandhi was able to succeed in India, Right? I mean, there was violence. There were other groups and other people who led uh, violent resistance to British colonial rule, but not Gandhi. Gandhi supported passive resistance, and he succeeded. Could he have succeeded sooner? Who knows? Uh, but that worked. Uh, the same with uh, Mandela in South Africa, right? Passive resistance. Well, if passive resistance is uh, the path that leads to reform, uh, and I would, I would also cite Dr. King, uh, doc, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Republican civil rights activist of the 1960s, right? Uh, these, these causes were righteous and they were able to succeed. Apartheid ended in South Africa, India gained its independence, and the United States adopted civil rights. Well, if that's the case, if this is such a righteous cause, then why not passive resistance? If, it's, if the Palestinians are worried about being annihilated by the Israelis and they're living in constant fear, then why wouldn't a passive uh, approach work? And, and so you look at the situation and you say, uh, well, you know, if they were passive, what would happen? Well, the violence would stop. There'd be no more rockets. There'd be no more killings, no more stabbings and ramming attacks. And Israelis would live in peace. 
And then Israel, which is a peace-loving country, would no longer have to maintain security barriers and maintain such a large military force ready to deal with issues of internal security within Israel and within uh, the Gaza Strip and Judea and Samaria, the, what the international press calls the West Bank, erroneously. And uh, then there would be peace. And, and that's the status that Israelis want. Everyone wants peace. Once there is peace, even if there's no formal peace deal, <clears throat> if they were passive, there would be investment. Palestinians would have jobs. There would be factories built in Ramallah and Gaza City, right? And they would have uh, ec- access to economic opportunity and there would be no more violence, right? The, the, the fact of the situation is if the violence ended, <clears throat> the de facto peace would settle in. And without enmity, without anger and hatred as time presses on, uh, the two peoples would probably learn to live together, as we've seen uh, in the peace deals now with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, <clears throat> warming relations with Saudi Arabia and Iraq, uh, Morocco, Sudan, other countries have made peace with Israel, right? Normalized relations. As that's happened, it, it really hasn't changed much. Uh, the fact is, we Israelis and Arabs get on just fine once we take away the violence and the hate kind of funny thing about people, right? You know, if two people hate each other, then they don't get on. And if you take away the hate, then they can at very least live and let live and just ignore each other, right? Uh, But it doesn't work that way. I mean, people build friendships, business relationships, right? So if that were the case, if there were no violence, then there would be no conflict and there would be peace. Even if there were no formal peace treaty. Even if this, this whole peace process, oh, we've got to come up with a solution and, and get this thing on paper, even if that weren't the case, there would be peace, right? And, and this is a, a fact of international relations that I, I don't understand why people don't talk about it. Well, I guess I do. There's no money in it, right? Because the, the peace process means that there are lots of people employed at the State Department, uh, money that goes to the, the Palestinians, the European Union, all, all these, there's all these institutions, that make money from having diplomats and diplomatic offices and staff and this kind of thing. Okay, so I, I get that, all right? But the fact is, if you have two countries next to each other, Germany and Poland, that don't get along, let's just say, right? If they don't attack one another, if there is no war, there is peace, even if they don't have formal relations with one another, okay? So in any case, if they adopted passive resistance, they could have the Palestinian state very quickly and there would be peace, right? The violence is necessary to the Palestinian cause for one reason and one reason only, and that is that they don't want peace. Okay, that, that's back to this goal thing. If, if there are two groups of people who just want peace, right? If your neighbor keeps annoying you and you just want the neighbor to stop annoying you and then the neighbor stops annoying you, you have peace, right? You're, you're no longer annoyed. So the, the goal here cannot be peace, now, the goal of the Palestinians is the destruction of Israel. And because it's the destruction of Israel, the violence must continue. Violence is the only way to destroy Israel. If they stop the violence, if they go to passive resistance, they will, quote-unquote, free themselves, right? I mean, they, they, if, if, again, if the problem is Israeli occupation, this is the point. All of the talking points we hear, the Israeli occupation, Israeli blockades, Israeli border fences, and this kind of thing. If those were the real problem... Passive resistance would eliminate those, right? If there was no violence and the Palestinians come out and line up along the security barrier and sing, Kumbaya, my lord, 
kumbaya, and they smoke a little bit of cannabis, and everybody has uh, a good time, then uh, there will be peace, right? But there's no need for a security barrier when everybody's peace, love, and, and whatever, okay? Those aren't the real problem. Those are just Israeli security measures that prevent the Palestinians from having access to kill Israeli civilians. All right, so we've established that peace isn't the goal and, and therefore uh, the violence must continue. And that's why we have this constant drum of <clears throat> stabbing attacks and ramming attacks and rockets and this, this constant attempt to perpetuate the false belief that there is a conflict, that there is a war, <clears throat> right? And that's uh, a bunch of nonsense. The, the, the Arabs just hoping if they can keep the war going long enough, eventually Israel will just go away or they'll have an opportunity to win. At this point, that's not going to happen. Uh, Arab governments are making peace with Israel and growing closer to Israel. Uh, Iran has become been recognized as the greater threat. Eventually, the Iranian threat will abate and perhaps a, a period of peace will uh, descend on the Middle East and there will be peace and prosperity. Uh, the Arabs have a lot of oil money to invest uh, and they could develop their uh, other industries, tech industries and such. And so, you know, we, we could have a period of, of trade and prosperity and mutual economic growth and, and mutual respect. It could happen. <clears throat> and at some point in a future episode, I'm going to discuss what that could look like uh, when the opportunity arises. But in the meantime, we keep having to deal with this this issue. And obviously, the ongoing violence from the Palestinians is, you know, it's demonstrative of their goals and it explains why their cause is, is nothing, right? <clears throat> you go back to uh, the 1930s and you hear Adolf Hitler whining about Lebensraum. We, we need room, breathing room. <clears throat> we need room to live, right? Germans need to expand. We, we, need, we need all that Russian farmland for our farmers, right? And you're sitting there looking at him like, you know, shaking your head. Just like, Adolf, seriously, that's nuts. Just, <laughs> you know, Why? Why is this necessary? It's almost, a, you know, it's, it's as necessary as persecuting the Jews. It's just another insane, you know, uh, goal put forward by tyrants and oppressors who want, what? More power over more people. It, it's a, a, you know, it's a sad reality of, of human nature. Uh, some people are crazy like that and they just want power. They just want to control other people and they're never happy unless they're doing so. Well... That's the world we live in, and uh, hopefully righteousness will prevail and, and good people will bring about uh, more positive ends. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has laid out his strategy to deal with the Omicron variant, attack of the Omicron variant. Uh, in Israel, he's calling for more vaccination and uh, slightly increased restrictions, uh, but generally speaking, not much is going to change from uh, the status quo ante. But uh, people are getting tired of the lockdowns and, and the constant nonsense and the constant, you know, there's always a new strain. And some people are noting that it's kind of funny that as soon as we have an Omicron variant, all of a sudden there are no numbers available on the Delta variant, right? All of a sudden that's gone <clears throat> right? nobody's getting infected with that anymore. Apparently that's not a problem. So we get all this, this stuff and the moo and the new and the, you know, I, I, mentioned earlier, I had joked about at one point how, you know, when the Delta variant was out that someday we'd have a Mu variant and a new variant. Uh, we've gotten way down the Greek alphabet here to Omicron and uh, it is getting just a tad ridiculous. Uh, there have been a, something like 175 cases, uh, tested positive cases of the Omicron variant in Israel. And we're talking about a population of 8 million people 
Uh, and we have no statistics on the death rate or how many of those people actually developed symptoms or anything like that. <clears throat> uh, as I noted in previous episode, viruses evolve to be less deadly. They become more symbiotic, or I should say less parasitic, maybe that'd be a better term, uh, over time so that they survive. Nine Knesset members are also in quarantine after having been potentially exposed to the Omicron variant. Uh, so they'll be on, on quarantine for a time so that they don't spread it, potentially. So that's the news with regard to virus lockdowns and uh, restrictions in Israel. Israel continues to take the crisis seriously. Uh, but uh, as with a lot of populations, people are getting tired of the, the strictures. All right. So President Trump's comments, I've, uh, I've mentioned in the last episode the, the number of quotes coming from former President Trump's interview uh, with Mr. Ravid. And uh, these are, are being addressed in his forthcoming book. And these just continue to be these fiery comments that come out. And the latest is that uh, President Trump spoke about how uh, most Jews don't care about Israel anymore and evangelical Christians are better friends of Israel than most Jews are. So the funny thing about this is he's not saying anything many Jews haven't already said. Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, and several others have commented for some time that about half the Jews, the self-identified Jewish people in America, are secular leftists who really have no ties to Israel, to Judaism, to anything uh, remotely religious. And even among those who have some synagogue attendance, there's a lot of secularism uh, some of that is is people just doing sort of their their sort of family tradition uh, and uh, occasionally showing up for the high holidays or uh, you know invited by a friend or what have you and there are several entire movements of Judaism like the reform movement and uh, the reconstructionist movement and this sort that are basically communist Judaism I mean they're they're leftism with a, a Jewish character at most, a little bit of Hebrew. And, you know, so you, you look at these movements and you're just like, where's the Judaism, right? I mean, it was like, you know, you have, you have a beef sandwich without the beef, right? There's no pastrami in my sandwich. This is supposed to be a pastrami sandwich. Where is it? So, you know, there you go to Oneg at uh, Reform Shul uh, after services and there's a shrimp cocktail, right? You know, you're like, why, what? <laughs> Right. Pass the shrimp cocktail. This is uh, our, our Shabbat dinner. So the, these people have kind of left Judaism behind. Now, some movements try to preserve one level or another of practice. Uh, the so-called conservative movement, which is conservative, well, majority in Beivrit, uh, conservative in the sense of conserving uh, Jewish tradition and practice without being orthodox uh, is the, the meaning of conservative there. It doesn't mean that, that people who attend conservative shul are conservative. Uh, I was in the conservative movement for a number of years myself, and uh, like most Jewish movements, most of the Jews there are left. Uh, I, I also self-identify as a working-class liberal myself. So, uh, you know, that, uh, that used to be a left-wing position. I used to be a Democrat. <laughs> And this is, politics have changed. I had to make my jexodus 15 years ago when I realized that the Democrats didn't care about working class people or liberalism. And uh, it took a few years for other people to realize that, but then they came to the, we've, we've sort of come to the mass conclusion that if you're working class or Jewish, the Democrat Party really isn't your home. 
right? They, they're much more concerned about other issues. In any case, uh, so I want to say liberalism and free thought are kind of built into Jewish culture. And as a result, uh, and tolerance, this kind of thing, as a result, there's been a manipulation of that to drive Jews in a secular and leftist. And when I say leftist, that, that for those of you in Rio Linda, that means communism, <laughs> Uh, there's all these people, you know, well, it's, it's more nuanced than that. I'm only a socialist or whatever. I'm like, no, no, it all, all roads lead to Rome, right? You can be a moderate social Democrat, but your policies ultimately lead to the same place, totalitarian dictatorship. All roads lead to Stalin. Okay. It, it, that's just the fact of leftism. Uh, eventually you collapse the economy. Eventually you cause inflation. And we're seeing inflation in America right now from bigger government and more government command of the economy. Right. Uh, same thing that happened in Venezuela. Same thing that happened in Zimbabwe. Same thing that happened in China. Same thing that happened in North Korea. Same thing that happened in the Soviet Union. History repeats itself. Um, Trying the same thing over and over again and uh, expecting different results is Einstein's definition of insanity. Speaking of uh, wise and highly erudite Jews, uh, and uh, this is the, the insanity we get out of leftism. In any case, uh, half the Jews in this country are secular leftists, and they're no longer really Jewish. They're, they're Jewish in name only. Maybe their grandparents were Jewish. They have some claim to being ethnically descended from Jews, but they're not Jewish. And they're ashamed of their Judaism, right? They're ashamed of that. So, you know, these are people that are the loudest voices in college for Palestinian freedom and, and ending the oppression of the poor Palestinians uh, because they have to be, right? It, you know, and, and white privilege starts with Jewish privilege, of course, as I've talked about, you know, to the, you know, to the communist, to, the, to those who hate, who hate capitalism, the Jew is a capitalist. To those who hate communism, the Jew is a communist. To those who hate whites and whiteness and all of this, the Jew is white. We're always the bad guys. There's never a time when you look at, you know, who are the good guys and the bad guys, and the Jews end up in the good guy column. Except if, you know, you're evangelical Christian. Now we get to the other half of uh, former President Trump's comment. He was saying that evangelical Christians are more supportive of Israel than ever. This is a group of people who love Jews, who love Judaism, who love Israel, who want to support uh, the Jewish cause and support Israel. And they are very staunch about it. It is part of their beliefs, right? It is they go and they pray and they read the Bible and it is part of their beliefs that they should support the Jewish people and Israel. And as a result, they're very pro-Israel. And we look at this and, you know, people are still on the, on the left-wing Jewish culture, still look at those people as anti-Semites somehow, right? How, I don't know. I mean, you, at this point, you can, if you believe that, it can only be a result of delusion, right? Because no, there's no factual basis, whatever, uh, for that conclusion right there. So former President Trump's comments are right, uh, he's not wrong. Many Jews have said the same thing. Uh, some people are trying to attack it as some kind of anti-Semitic comment. No, no, it, we know it's true. Uh, speaking of the, the half of Jews who do have some connection to Judaism, 60% of them, or 30% of the total self-identified Jewish population, but 60% of the Jewish Jews vote Republican, right? So 30% of Jews overall 60% of the half that have some connection to Jewish religion, Israel, and, and Judaism. And I will tell you, if you go to pro-Israel causes, whether it's APAC or uh, other groups, you will find a much larger share of 
conservative and uh, politically right-minded Jews there, a larger percentage of Republican Jews than you will find in the general population, right? So if you got 10 Jews representing the average Jewish population in America, five of them are basically communists, you know, secular leftists who really have no attachment to Judaism. Two are, uh, have some attachment to Judaism, maybe titularly Zionist. They may, they may give lip service to being pro-Israel and, and supporting Zionism as in, you know, the existence of a Jewish state. But they'll also be, well, we've got to end the occupation of blah, 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 and this kind of thing. And then you've got three Jews who are going to be politically conservative or politically right, right? As um, I'd be one of those, as I, I've stated, even though uh, still a working class liberal, <laughs> uh, but that's no longer on the left. Uh, the left has nothing to do with liberalism anymore. I, I actually think people should stop using the term liberal to refer to the left. There's nothing liberal about controlling free speech. There's nothing liberal about using government to control the economy. Uh, those are very much the opposite of the liberal ideal, right? The liberal ideal is that everyone makes their own choices, uh, that government shows kindness and sticks up uh, for the little guy. Nobody should starve. Uh, workers should have fair working conditions and reasonable benefits and this kind of thing, right? We, we shouldn't let the, the uh, business leaders and management just walk all over the workers, but neither should the workers walk all over management or public employee unions completely control the government so that the voters don't, these kinds of things. There's a balance there. But the fact is that was American liberalism at what time? Uh, and that's now a right wing uh, on the ideological spectrum that is now right of center and considerably right of center. Uh, there are people farther left than I who are in the Trump camp, in the Republican camp, right? So uh, this is the situation with, with President Trump's comments. There's no need to, to fly off the handle and get all upset and offended about this. Uh, the fact is, again, he's not saying anything other people haven't said. His daughter and son-in-law are Jewish I think that gives him some license to talk about these things. But as he vents his frustration on uh, Bibi Netanyahu and uh, the Israeli right a little bit in these interviews, as he vents his frustration on uh, the Jewish community here in the U.S., uh, he's, he's just expressing things that, uh, for the most part, people knew and, uh, and were already kind of out there. Uh, it is, it is kind of frustrating uh, in this process that, you know, that he says these things, they're mostly true, but it's a sad thing that there's not much we can do about them. Uh, Attempts to to ingather Jews and secular Jews are out there. Uh, I really just have to say, me personally, I've been really excited to have a large number of secular Jews join uh, the audience of this podcast. That's been a surprising demographic for me. Uh, I kind of assume most of the the audience would be... uh, those who are interested in learning about news in Israel, I didn't think Jews would Jews should already be tuned in, right? Uh, but a large number of Jews who weren't tuned in have chosen to tune in to Inside Israel News to to catch that. So I'm I'm glad about that. Uh, but efforts to ingather secular Jews have been afoot for some time, and they really haven't been all that successful. Uh, Chabad has opened its doors to try to get people in. They've they've gotten a few. Uh, Orthodox movement has uh, tried to many different efforts to bring in. Uh, secularized Jews uh, from the modern Orthodox movement, which uh, is also fairly open door uh, to the effort to try to ingather Jews, and it just hasn't been that successful. It's it's been peanuts, you know, small numbers. Meanwhile, 
as the former president said, the evangelical crowd is ardently and fervently pro-Israel. It's just the fact and reality of the modern time. And it would be really nice if we could change that. Uh, but those Jews who are secular leftists are very, very staunch in their opinions, and they're not going to change. I mean, we're not going to convince them in a generation. I will say a lot of young Jews are leaning in the rightward direction. Mostly, I want to say kind of, there's been sort of a left libertarian movement in the Jewish movement that I was aware of in my youth that has kind of become more of a right libertarian movement. Jews have become more aware that school choice, uh, less government, these kinds of things leave more freedom for Jews to be Jewish, right? That we can practice Judaism, send children to our own Jewish day schools and, and live as Jews freely in America with uh, greater ease if government isn't involved in everybody's lives, right? And so that that is kind of the new movement among the younger generation. That is bringing some people back to the synagogue, uh, but also it's you know, it, it's just a different attitude uh, going forward in politics. I don't know how big that movement is ultimately going to be. It'll take time for us to see that coalesce and develop. But it could be that the younger generation of Jews will go in a smaller government, uh, more hands-off direction. We will see. Right, now that I'm back from the break, I want to talk about a couple of other issues that are going on uh, in Israel. Some This is a good time when there's not a lot of action in the news to talk about ongoing problems. And uh, I spoke earlier about the, uh, the purported Palestinian cause, their, their, their grievances, or as uh, Midwestern and Southern Americans so concisely say, their gripes. Their, uh, their concerns are uh, specious and related to the security situation, right? They are responses to Palestinian violence. Well, they're not the only ones. A number of Israeli Christian leaders have expressed concerns about radical Jewish groups. This is interesting. Uh, they're saying that uh, radical Jews are driving them out, Christians out of uh, Israel. Now, what they're complaining about are uh, acts of vandalism and the security barrier, things like that, right? And... Uh, uh, they're, they're claiming there's been some violence, but it's not clear that there's been a lot of violence from settlers. It's back to this um, ongoing complaint about the language we use to describe, you know, Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. These are ancient Jewish lands. These communities are Jewish communities on the foundations of ancient Jewish communities. Uh, you know, this is Jewish land. In any case, they're, they're claiming uh, to be, you know, under attack by Jewish extremists. Now, this is kind of an interesting issue. So, what happens to Christians in the Middle East, right? Syria just devolved into all this violence. There were a significant number of Syrian Christians. And a large number of them have been forced to leave. A large number have been killed. Uh, there was, and, and on a very sad note... Pictures going around. Uh, Facebook covered them, so I don't know if uh, those of you who may have seen them, but I, I follow a lot of uh, f feeds that come from the Middle East of a Christian woman who was tortured to death uh, by uh, the some of the I don't know if it was Islamic State in particular, but some of the uh, more uh, fanatical Sunni groups in Syria and. Uh, they, you know, I, I won't go into the details, but just the picture of her death 
you know, her hands nailed to the floor, her shirt off, uh, thankfully still wearing uh, her bra, her underwear. But, you know, it had been it was very clear this young woman had been tortured to death. And uh, this is this is how Christians are treated by the Arabs. Right. This is terrible. Uh, The Copts in Egypt have been increasingly under pressure and a lot of them have been fleeing Egypt uh, lately. And Egypt is one of the more tolerant Arab countries. So the treatment of Christians in the Middle East is a big problem. Vandalism, minor incidents of vandalism compared to being tortured to death. Right? So we can, we can try to assess the veracity of these claims, right? Uh, by putting them in context, right? So if the Palestinians ruled this region, Right, if they if they were in control, how would these Christians be treated? Now, that's not to say that uh, these incidents are not problematic, and they're claiming that the Israeli government hasn't uh, cracked down and hasn't been as eager to arrest people for these incidents and that kind of thing. They're fairly minor to begin with, uh, but you know, there are Christian groups in Shomron and Yehuda that are claiming that they're being harassed and mistreated by Jewish extremists. Uh, Nothing like the treatment they would have at the hands of the Arabs. Uh, But then you start to look at their specific complaints, and it's mostly vandalism and uh, uh, the the security barrier and things that make their life inconvenient, right? Well, the security barrier is a response to Palestinian violence. It's to keep terrorists out of Israel, right? So, once again, we have a, a group of people who are engaging in political activism that, you know, you start to look, what is the goal of this? And it seems that these, uh, these Christian leaders have some legitimate concerns. There's been some vandalism, maybe some mistreatment of Christians in the region. Maybe the Israeli government should crack down just a little bit. And, and you know, these, these are, you know, vandalism of churches is bad. Like that's, that's bad. I would not, I, I, I fully condemn Jews participating in this behavior. Uh, could Arabs be doing this and, and trying to blame Jews? It's possible, but it's also possible there are a few Jews in the region who are a little too zealous. And if they're doing so, then, then that's wrong. And that should not be done. And they should be punished. The government should arrest them. They should go to prison for whatever uh, just uh, punishment is warranted by the circumstances. But these Christian leaders in the region from the Orthodox Church and uh, other churches in the area, when they start talking about complaining about the security barrier and settlers, I, I have a hard time really believing the accuracy of their claims. It, it sounds a lot like politics and not a lot like protecting their communities. So take from it what you will. All right. Uh, the in, I've talked a little, quite a bit about German politics because, again, it's, a, it's another proportional system and a chance to talk about foreign politics. And obviously, uh, European politics does impact Israel significantly. Elections coming up in France. So I'll be doing uh, some coverage of the French elections next year. But uh, this is probably the last big story coming out of German politics for a little while uh, until the the traffic light coalition begins enacting some of their policies. There may be some mistakes in their policy approach or some unintended consequences, uh, especially shutting down the coal industry. It's going to be very interesting to see how they uh, go about all of that. But I've complained considerably about how Armin Laschet was leading the Christian Democrats in Germany and how uh, incompetent 
he was at that. He was a shill for the political establishment, and he led the CDU, objectively speaking now, so this isn't just my opinion or my analysis, objectively speaking, he led the CDU to its worst defeat in modern German history, right? The worst defeat the CDU has had since Konrad Adenauer led the party to victory in 1949, right? So this is, uh, that was at the very foundation of the Bundesrepublik, right? So uh, again, the the, the CDU needed new leadership. Well, they have chosen a new leader. The new leader of the CDU will be Friedrich Merz, who is uh, known to be a member of the Black Rock. I've told you about German color coding, ergo the traffic light coalition and the uh, preceding citrus coalition of different colors of uh, representative political party. Well, the CDU is represented by black. And so the Black Rocks are the staunch conservative wing of the party. Uh, now, he's far from a charismatic, popular leader. He's sought the leadership before. Uh, he's kind of a, the gadfly, like the usual right-wing uh, guy in the room who has, you know, is full of the, the right-wing rhetoric and that kind of thing. And, uh, but, you know, he's a known quantity in any case. But it represents a shift to the right by the CDU and a shift away from Merkel's moderation. The challenge for the CDU going forward now uh, is is very difficult because, on the one hand, the CDU has a strong a strong right wing base. I mean, even in their worst defeat, they came close to twenty five percent of the vote, right? So they are still the largest right wing party by far, right? Uh, you have uh, the Free Democrats down at fourteen percent, right? So that's you know obviously the the CDU is still by double digits the largest right wing party. But this is a party that used to poll in the upper uh, 30s, right? 38, 39, 40% of the vote. How are they going to recover that lost ground? Uh, a significant part of it was Angela Merkel's immigration policy, uh, allowing a large number, over a million Syrian refugees into Germany and just welcoming them in has led to a number of problems in Germany, from vandalism to gang rapes to the murder of German women. Uh, just... A lot of problems in Germany. And these are people who do not respect Western liberalism, right, and tolerance. And so, you know, there are now, you know, neighborhoods in Germany where the German government has told women not to go out at night and uh, suggested that people not uh, wear, Jews not wear their kippot or anything that identifies them as a Jew, and that, you know, homosexuals, transsexuals, and others uh, not be flamboyant. Uh, in these places, you know, because they could come under attack by those who disagree <laughs> strongly with their lifestyle, right? Uh, and this is, this is backsliding. This is not a, a progressive or forward-thinking policy for Germany to have to, to say these things. So that led to the rise of the Alternative Party, which was uh, anti-immigration and uh, against the constant coddling of Islam in Europe where uh, Muslims have more rights and more freedoms and uh, more lip service and policymaking is given to uh, advancing the Islamic cause than in any other place. Like, you know, there, there are things that are, exist in the West that don't exist in the Middle East. For example, uh, you have the, the great example that uh, Brigitte Gabriel brought up about 
Western airports all have these little bathing rooms where Muslims can go and wash their feet and their faces before prayers, right? And their prayer rooms, that kind of thing. If you go to Middle Eastern airports, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, these don't exist, right? So these are, these are giveaways to Muslims in Europe that do not exist in the Middle East, right? In, in the Middle East, you go to the bathroom and there's a little uh, bucket, basically, next to the toilet. You can spray some water into it and you can use it to wash your feet. Okay, you can go to the sink, you put water on your hands and you wash your face. Okay, that's how Muslims wash up in the Middle East. Uh, in Europe, they get a whole room to themselves with, uh, that is specially designed with a bench over a little, uh, looks kind of like a shower stall, but, you know, they can wash their feet and their face. And I mean, come on, people. Like, they, 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 get, they get so much, so much is done by Europeans to bend over backwards to... Uh, the demands of these Muslims, whereas, you know, they don't have, you know, they, they can protest and riot and all that kind of thing and, and get away with it in Europe. But if they do that in the Middle East, they get shot. What happens to Iranians when they protest for their freedom? Uh, it's not pretty. So here we are with uh, the situation. Well, Alternative, uh, of course, has been attacked as a nut job, right wing, neo-Nazi party of every kind by the media. Uh, and it's full of political amateurs. These are not the people who could advance those kinds of policies. So will CDU be able to get that ground back? Will they be able to, uh, the Bavarian, uh, the CSU, the, the Bavarian version of the Christian Democrat Party that is uh, allied to the Christian Democrats, they are certainly calling for restricted immigration. Right. And they wanted Merkel to set uh, quotas, a maximum amount of people allowed to come into the country. Right. And uh, that didn't happen. Well, we'll see if CDU can get that ground back. Also, the German right is going to have to re figure out what it's about. Uh, Angela Merkel was at least purportedly on the right. Uh, she led the CDU. And yet Germany's government has grown. Uh, Germany has, you know, given ground to Russia in terms of her gas deal with Russia, allowing the Russians to have more influence over German policymaking by supplying gas to Germany. Uh, Germans become more reliant on Russian gas, this kind of thing. There's a lot of trouble there. And uh, the CDU has to figure out what it's about. Uh, the, the old sort of moral and charitable approach of the CDU in the, you know, and, and growing a prosperous economy, rebuilding Germany, that, that agenda that Konrad Adenauer pushed and the more modern agenda of Helmut Kohl, where, you know, they were pushing German prosperity and for um, peace and uh, ongoing Ostpolitik of, of reaching out to uh, countries beyond the Iron Curtain into East Germany and into Poland and other countries and trying to be more friendly and trying to open relations with them, which actually proved pretty helpful in the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And then ultimately the reunification of Germany and the, the sort of reintegration of a united Germany, the end of the, the Deutsche Demokratik Republik, uh, the GDR, that was, that was then. Now what is the CDU about, right? Uh, Angela Merkel has kind of taken the wind out of their sails, Right. She was leading the country. That's all on CDU's record. And yet, I mean, Germany sort of soldiered on. But the German economy is stale. Um, German morals are a little weak. And Germany is uh, taking on large numbers of people who do not agree with German values. 
it'll be it's curious what are, what are they going to do well Mertz will set the agenda from here and try to re-energize the CDU base and try to gather in some of the uh, disparate groups that have left CDU I'm not confident that Mertz is the the leader who will bring the CDU to victory I'm not saying it's not possible he just doesn't seem to have what it takes but he could certainly do some rebuilding he could be a good change agent to bring the CDU away from Merkel's policies and toward uh, a new direction. He's going to have to find popular trends and uh, popular agenda on the right that have energy and drive in that direction and gather up uh, support so that the CDU can recover from its current low position. And that may take a couple of terms. It's not clear what's going to happen now. If the traffic light coalition proves to be a total and utter disaster then that will help the CDU and that might lead to a victory in the 2025 elections or early elections if the government just cannot go on uh, if it breaks up. But chances are, um, we, we, I mean, we won't know until then, but, but chances are the, the traffic light coalition will do its best to moderate its policies because the free Democrats are in the coalition and the free Democrats are a free market, liberal, economically and socially liberal party that wants freedom, open minds, you know, people choose their own path, uh, pro-business and this kind of thing. So that doesn't leave the CDU with a lot of ground uh, to launch their claims against the coalition. They're going to have to maybe have an agenda of of temporizing uh, and slowing down the more zealous pursuit of environmentalism by the Grüne Party and perhaps push back against the SPD's agenda. But the most extreme agenda of the Grüne and SPD parties won't be able to be enacted because of FDP. So CDU is really going to have to work hard. If CDU can put itself in a stronger position, they could also switch from a traffic light coalition to a Jamaican coalition uh, after the next election. Perhaps Grüne and FDP will choose to work with CDU instead of with SPD. But until then, Olaf Scholz is chancellor. Uh, he's with the SPD party and will continue to be. So CDU changes leadership. Armin Laschet is no longer the leader of uh, CDU. And I just want to close this as a, a point about politics. When you face failure, right, in politics, uh, you quit, right? Nancy Pelosi has lost a lot of elections, and she's about to face a historic loss. The polls show that uh, the Democrats are facing a historic loss in 2022. And yet she continues to lead the Democrat Party. Uh, Mitch McConnell is now in the minority, and yet he continues to lead the Republican Party in the, in the Senate. Excuse me. Nancy Pelosi leads the party in the House. She's the House Democrat leader and the Speaker, right? Uh, and we have uh, Mitch McConnell as the minority leader, even though he's lost control of the Senate. Like he gained it in 2014. He's slowly lost seats since then, and now he is in the minority. Why is he still leading the party, right? Armin Laschet lost one election, granted a historical loss, and he quit. He's gone. He's been replaced, right? Uh, that's how political leadership works, okay? You, you, you have your go at an election, and if you don't win, you, you have to have some excuse to stay on, right? Like uh, you could say, well, we lost, but we gained votes, and so I'm gathering in people, right? Something. You have to have something. If you have a, if you take a bad loss, you should quit, right? Uh, President Trump, of course, claims that uh, there was so much fraud in the 2020 election that that relates to his loss, and that's not a, quite what I'm talking about because, of course, whether you 
you look at that as a fraudulent loss or not, former President Trump won 75 million votes, a historically high number uh, for uh, a sitting president. So there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of momentum and a lot of energy going in his direction. And when you poll Republicans, he's still very popular. So that's a different situation. But when you look at Congress, when you look at legislative leadership, when you look at political leadership, people who lose elections should quit, right? If you don't have what it takes to win, you should go. And that's uh, something that has happened in Germany. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to see it. And I personally think that that's uh, a uh, trend that should come to the United States. If, if political leadership is not sound, then it should go, right? Uh, quit, get out of the way and let some new leadership take over. All right, a couple of stories that are not uh, making the news as much as I think they should. Uh, Chile has a new president. Gabriel Boric was able to beat the extreme right candidate in an election in Chile, and uh, he's a known leftist. Uh, He has been a champion of the Palestinian cause and an opponent of Israel, outspoken critic of Israel. And uh, this is a a challenge to Chile's Jews. Chile has an anti-Semitic president coming in, and there is a question as to whether uh, Jews will be safe in Chile. And this just underlines the need for Jews to have a country of our own where Jews can go and live safely if they so wish. Uh, Nevertheless, it's not a good thing when people elect uh, anti-Semitic presidents. Uh, It's been uh, an aphorism, kind of a, a... well understood group think, uh, you know, something that goes without saying, you know what I'm saying? It's been out there for a long time that anti-Semitism is a right-wing problem, even though fascism and national socialism were leftist ideologies. But there we go. Uh, nationalists tend to be anti-Jewish, so you can get that. I mean, people who are uh, about France for the French look at Jews and they're like, well, they're not French enough right? Like anyone else, like any immigrant, like, you know, so that's why those things are bad, among other things. Uh, nobody can be French enough. Um, nationalism is not a healthy ideology. Uh, in any case, anti-Semitism is becoming a left-wing phenomenon. Uh, and the, the right, uh, it, there, are, there are rightists, that's nationalist, fascists, that kind of thing. Again, I, I think of those people as being leftist in ideology because I like to think of the right in American terms, where right means like libertarian or minarchist, a minimum of government, a greater amount of freedom. And in such a circumstance, any group of people in society can thrive, right? They don't need to be uh, coddled by the government. And uh, those who control the government, of course, can control who's, uh, you know, who are the winners and losers, right? And uh, they can decide who those people are. And then Jews can find themselves on the outside looking in very quickly. In any case, uh, this has become uh, a very big problem in the left. The um, people like this this new Chilean president, uh, college campuses here in the U.S., uh, socialists around the world, just being extremely anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. So Chile has a new anti-Semitic president. Chilean Jews are worried. And uh, we have yet another uh, bad guy at the head of state in another country where Jews are concerned. And that, that's just a sad thing that, I mean, what can you do? Uh, I wish the people of Chile had made a better choice. Of course, given the choices that were in front of them, it's hard to say that the other uh, candidate would have been any better, right? 
That's, that's the problem when you have presidential systems, you have two candidates. And so you're always perpetually left with the lesser of two choices, right? The lesser two evils. The, you have to choose the, the best of poor choices when you have a presidential system. And a parliamentary system is a little bit more balanced. And no matter who's leading a given political party, they have to maintain popularity, which means they can't be too extreme in one direction or the other. All right, well, let's end on a happy note. Uh, bring in some positive stories here to close out the episode. Anastasia Gorbenko, who is 18 years old, uh, is an Israeli swimmer, and she has taken a second gold at the Swimming Olympics in Abu Dhabi. Uh, the Swimming Olympics are, are taking place there, uh, and uh, this is the second competition. It's the 100-meter medley, a second competition in which she has taken a gold. So uh, go, uh, Anastasia. This is a great uh, victory for Israel in a peaceful but competitive <laughs> environment. Uh, Israelis do uh, very well in sports and are very athletic, and that is, uh, that is proving itself out there in the world. Uh, Israelis are winning in various, you know, from judo to uh, swimming contests, uh, Israelis are winning gold, and that's uh, a good thing. Last story, uh, Israel has developed an immunotherapy drug. And at first, it ran into problems with regulators because it required such a high dose. It just required too much medicine. Well, they've managed to uh, give a millionth of that dose to a patient and produce very positive results. So this immunotherapy is uh, a treatment for tumors. And uh, the problem, again, was that you know, they were delivering the drug, uh, the treatment, uh, by high dosage so that it would be absorbed throughout the body. And they have now found a way to target the delivery of the dose directly toward the tumor, which allows them to use a much smaller amount. They're basically, they then are able to uh, attack the target right away. They're saying this will revolutionize the way immunotherapies and, and other medicines are delivered uh, through their, the mechanism of delivery in this case. So that's advancing uh, Israeli uh, Researchers are advancing medical technology and helping to bring health and uh, happiness uh, to the world. <laughs> we, we want to see greater advances in medicine, science, and technology coming out of Israel that benefit the world. And there have been many, uh, and uh, there will be many more. So with that, I will say, as always, lehitrot, goodbye.